Listener Production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that basically, basically likes the basics or something. I'm Scott Phillips and he is the straw man himself, the man of straw, the uh, scarecrow on the Wizard of Oz. I'm not sure. Anyway, he is, of course, <laughs> the founder, managing director and chief cook and bottle washer of the wonderful... Oh, what does it do again? We're an online private investment club, as you know. That's right. That's right. Called strawman.com. I'm more offended that I'm the character without a brain in The Wizard of Oz. I didn't say that. Did I say you were straw in The Wizard of Oz? It, I, I didn't say I didn't know a brain. If, if you choose that for your business, then uh, <laughs> hey, why does why would you call you, why would you name your business after a character in The Wizard of Oz, dude? I mean, come on, what's going uh, on? Well, the it's more after the logical fallacy, and it's more just the idea yeah. that that uh, we we want to. My firm belief is that the best way to strengthen an investment idea is to challenge it. And so the idea was, is that we just, we, we want not to start fights, that's not very productive, <laughs> but we want a constructive conversation and, and we want to avoid, I think the biggest risk for any, I think whether it's a fund management team or just a, a local investment club, the biggest challenge you face is groupthink, right? Yeah. And you know, oh, we all like oh, this. Everyone, everyone says, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, so I, I'm really, I'm, I'm really keen to make sure that even when there are things that are very popular within the community, that mm. we still, even if it's from a devil, devil's advocate position, to sort of say, well, here's the other side of the argument. Um, let's take mm. it seriously. And so. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it probably wasn't the best from an SEO perspective or something like that. You know, like, is this an investment thing? I don't quite get it. But anyway, it's stuck now, so that's where we're at. Fair enough, fair enough. You mentioned SEO, a term that means Mm. search engine optimization. And not looking to do anything about SEO, but we are going to spend today's podcast defining our terms, mate. Now, uh, this is a holiday episode, as I'm sure this is know by now. It's being pre-recorded, so uh, just yeah, bear, bear with us. If something really, really important broke yesterday, uh, we don't know. We know it by now, but you don't know that we don't know because we pre-recorded it. So there you go, uh, mate. We're going to talk about the some of the well, I was going to say basic investment topics, hence the introduction. But some of the investment terms that I think we can sometimes um, take for granted. We got a question from Morgan, and, and Morgan, this is not a mailbag episode, but it was the idea for the for the episode. He says, "Hello, Scott and Lord Simeon, which I, I quite like. Ooh, I, I didn't know you like that. Made a lord. You get you get get knighted. If you knighted, you made a sir. What do you have to do? Is it, are you invested as a lord? I don't know. What's the process? I'll let, I'll let you know you when lord it happens. Nah. <laughs> well, Morgan, Morgan's already given it to you. I just wondering. I'll how take it. Um, I'll take it. Anyway, Morgan says, "Long time listener, second time caller, writer, person to the podcast machine." Good man. Recently, my wife asked me to explain some of the basics around investing and the means of certain meanings of certain parts, e.g., franking credits and how they work, PE, where it sits for value, etc. Which brings me to my question slash request for a holiday episode. And here we are. Could you please do an episode on the segment? Oh, sorry, all segment on the basics, the terms, and things an absolute beginner should know and look at. I'm sure it would benefit a large amount of people, and especially those wanting to start out but just confused by it all. I mean, I guess at some level, mate, this is what we kind of try and do most weeks in different form, forums and formats. <clears throat> but again, we're doing a, a holiday episode. We thought we'd just literally spend the episode talking about some of these things. If you mm. already know them and you are a super long-term investor, if you desperately want to, feel free to skip this episode. But I hope it's going to fill in some gaps for everybody. 
I also hope it creates a bit more conversation because as we go through this, if there are terms we don't cover, please hit us up uh, on email or the socials um, because we'll do another one of these at some point, not while I'm away because we will pre-recorded them all, um, but there'll be another holiday episode at some point or even just a, an episode we want to kind of throw into the mix. So the stuff we don't cover, we're not going to try to do everything. You can't do... Uh, there there will know, be stuff we don't cover. Yeah, right, we, exactly. But if there's stuff that we kind of go, I wish they'd covered that thing, let us know. Tell us what that is and we can pick it up in a, in a future app. What do you reckon, Ram? Yeah, man. I'm, I think it's a great, I think it's a great suggestion. Um, it, it's like a lot of industries, you know, um, a lot of things are, are sort of hidden behind a bunch of mm. jargon and frankly, a lot of nonsense <laughs> yeah. as well. But I'm such a big believer, and if you know, if you can't really explain it in a way that you know a 16 year old could understand, um, you, you probably don't know it yourself. So I actually I find these things kind of really useful for me. Or just the, I was the say, process. It, it of might make it look really stupid if we can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, but it's it just I think oh, they say that the best way to learn is to teach, and I think it's so yeah. true. Just having to sort mm-hmm. of force the articulation of some of these concepts. Um, just help sort of hammer it home a little bit. So, yeah, I'm really keen to give it a go. I, one of the other ones I like with that is um, a, a famous author, maybe it's one or a whole lot of people say, um, I, I write to think. Yeah. I quite like that one as well. The podcast is the same. When, you, when you're forced to explain something, when you're, when you're putting down your thoughts about a topic or an issue, it is literally that. You're kind of thinking it through and kind of putting yeah. things in order and trying to explain yourself. It's, it's a really great way um, to really understand whether you know what you think you know. So St- let's do that, mate. Look, I was going to say just a quick off. one. St- okay. St- Stephen yeah. King calls writing uh, refined thinking. And I just, I've always <laughs> nice. loved that so much because yeah. it just, it, it, it is... And I do it. I do a lot of writing that no one ever reads, right? Just for myself, right. because it it, yeah. it just forces you to clarify that thinking and order mm. that thinking. Mm. It's just so amazingly powerful, and it also helps reinforce learning. So a lot of lot of benefit in it, and it's why we always talk about the the value of an investment mm. diary. So yeah, I'm I've drunk the Kool Aid on that, my friend. That is absolutely oh, a, I'm, a, a good thing to do is write stuff down. I'm also wondering whether the things you're writing that no one else is reading are like you've got some budding sort of romance novelist in your, in your <laughs> future or something. Is it, are, are, are we doing just investment things you're writing down or are there other things that are, uh, that are being written down that may come to the light day at some future point? Uh, mainly investment things. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's, no secret, there's no secret book of poetry. Let me say that. <laughs> and if there was, I, w- I would not inflict that upon the world. <laughs> uh, Andrew Page in the style of T.S. Eliot. I want to read that. Well, I actually uh, read no, that you do not. I didn't really like T.S. Eliot the first time around. I do remember some of the uh, love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, for those who did it in English, but uh, mm. not much. Did you do, did you do Eliot? No, I, I, I was I was in the really lowest of low grades when it came to English. <laughs> I should have been. I should have been I'll too. admit. All right, let's get on with it, mate. Let's. So, what we're going to do? We're going to we're going to very quickly. Well, I say that you've listened to our podcast before. You know what's going to happen next. We're going to oh, yeah. walk through the profit and loss statement. Now, people say that accounting is the language of business, and I think that's one hundred percent true. Mm. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in it. We're not going to do it in absolute detail. Buy a textbook if you want. Google everything you want. But what we thought we do is kind of walk down top to bottom. And give our listeners a sense of how these things are created. And the reason we're going to do that is because we're then going to talk about some valuation metrics that rely on some of those things. Talk a little bit about where the profit and loss statement, the accounting statement, differs from the actual cash flows. And they are different things. We'll talk about that. Um, and we'll maybe just 
call out a couple of bits and pieces, different business models, way companies spend or don't spend their money, how to think about some of that stuff. So we'll try and get all that done in the time we have allotted, and we'll see how we go. Mm-hmm. Mate, let's start from the very, very, very top of the PL. The easiest thing in the world should be this thing called revenue, right? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you're not, if you're not selling anything, the, uh, the whole thing's probably, either, either you're in the dot-com boom in 1999, you're making promises that your, your business model can't cash, uh, or uh, you're about to go broke. What exactly, though, is revenue? It's just sales, basically. How many, you know, what's the dollar value of all the services and goods that, that, I, that I sold? Um, it's really one of the cleanest items there because mm-hmm. it's sort of unadulterated in the sense Ish. that they're- I'm going to say ish, but go on. Well, you you are right because there's, <laughs> there's this there's this concept of revenue recognition. So the cash may mm-hmm. come in the door on day one, but maybe you can't formally recognize that. And there's all kinds you of different things. Yep. But here's yep. here's the trouble, right? Like that they've all all items have this kind of issue. Correct. But revenue is pretty good in most cases, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's where. It's an absolutely sensible place to start because if you have a business, A, that doesn't have any revenue, that's not to say you avoid it, by the way, but at least should put in context for you the sort of where you are on the risk spectrum. And by the way, of the 2,200 companies on the ASX, there's a, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that don't have any <laughs> revenue whatsoever. That's right. um, no right. business has revenue on day one, right? You've got to mm-hmm. register the business name, get the website up, up hire people. I mean, there, there isn't – so it's, it's not – you know, it's it's not as yeah. though it's an instant no, but just know that you are you are you, there is a much bigger hill to climb. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. There is so that that's important. So revenue, yep, sales. Uh, but again, you can, for example, book revenue you haven't received cash for yet. Uh, if you're you know someone's gonna you send someone a bill. I made the sale, I did the thing, or I you know we, we did the deal, but they haven't given me the cash yet. Or as you said, they can give you the cash up front. And then you can still have to do the service. So uh, revenue and, and cash flow. I'll give an example of Motley Fool. We we offer 12-month subscriptions as a yep. straw man. And we get cash up front for that. But we have to perform those services over the following 12 months. So it's it's not actually revenue. The cash flow comes in the door. 100 bucks, great, thank you. But effectively, that part, that that's that's recognized on the balance, on the P&L, sorry, at $8-ish dollars a month. Every single month. So the revenue is different to the cash flow, but generally uh, over time, sales are sales. And then speak, well, speaking of the balance sheet, which we should already segueing here, but but then you'll have an item called unearned income, right? So like yes, you've correct. got this sort of square things away there. It's like, well, which I've got the cash. Exactly. I've got the cash. Yes, that's on the that's balance right. sheet. But there's, yep, there's yep. this item here, which is just like I, I, as a liability because yes. maybe I have a refund that I need to honor or other, yep. other considerations yep. like that. But yes, yep. You, yep, what you said was 100% right. Now let's move to. I'm gonna. We're not gonna do every single line on the PL. Let's go straight to gross profit, and on the way, we'll describe cost of goods sold. So, mm. as a as a business, you can measure profitability a hundred different ways, but the simplest one at a very very top level, and this is really important for, in my view anyway, mate, for loss making businesses, is looking at their gross profit. Now as I said there's lots of profits. We'll get through. And there's operating profit. There's net profit. There's other um, things like EBITDA, which we'll talk about. But gross profit just says, right, how much do I sell the can of Coke for? Sold it for a buck. Cool. Mm -hmm. And when I bought the can of Coke from the Coke people, how much did I pay? Well, I paid 75 cents. Okay. So your sales are a dollar. Your cost of goods sold, literally the cost of the things that you sold, was 75 cents. What's left over is my gross profit 
of 25 cents. And that tells me how much of each dollar of sales I get to use to pay all of the rest of my costs. You can't make a sale without the cost of goods because by definition, it's literally linked to the product. But it doesn't cover salaries. It doesn't cover warehousing. It doesn't cover uh, the office buildings. It doesn't cover tax. It doesn't cover interest on the on any loans I might have. But it's a really nice number. It just it gives you a sense of how profitable those businesses are. Andrew, you were telling me only this morning, we're recording this on the day that Catapult released their results. And you were telling me that their video business is about 90% gross margin. So they know for every dollar of sales they make, they get 90 cents. Now, compare that to Woolies, which is about 26 cents in the dollar uh, and plenty in between. Now that's, by the way, 26 cents gross profit. We'll talk a little bit later. They only keep about five cents of that by the time they pay their other costs. So it, you know, it's only one line. It's not enough by itself. But I too, I reckon from a, from a business analysis perspective, particularly with a loss-making business, the gross profit margin at least tells you something about the structure of their business, how much money they're managing to keep from each sale, because it does give you a bit of a sense of when they get to a certain scale, how much will be left over to then pay the other costs of the business. Yeah, it, it's, it's um, unit economics is phenomenally important. Mm. So I could have a really great sales uh, line, a top line, revenue line, because mm. I go to Apple and I buy an iPhone for $1,200 but I go and then sell it on my website for $300. Now, mm -hmm. those things are going to fly out the door and I'm going to have <laughs> huge sales because this yeah, idiot yeah. over here is giving me you know, 75% off. But the unit <laughs> economics of what I'm actually doing, forgetting the rest mm -hmm. of my cost structure, every sale I make, I'm losing money, a lot of yeah. money. And you'd be surprised the number of companies <laughs> that have very ordinary or negative unit economics. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you know, shouldn't be, I mean, there's always, it depends and a maybe and exceptions yes. to the rule, but it might yeah. be a sort of a, you know, an, a, a part of the growth strategy. We sort of, we get there, we win the market, then, then we, then we mm -hmm. lift prices, et cetera, et cetera. Uber's the classic example of this. Their unit economics were awful. Tesla, I want to say, was the same, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it, it's just sort of, it's okay. Hey, if it's part of a growth strategy <laughs> and that, that sort of pays off and you do have the eventual mm. ability to pull that lever and change that. But if it doesn't change, it doesn't really matter what else is happening because you're just going to lose money the more you sell. And that's that's not a great business model. Yes, exactly. And, and I will say important. this, I just no, I, no, I, yeah, and, yeah. and just to expand on it here too, I've I've long said that I've I'm very biased towards <laughs> technology companies. Yeah. And the reason is is because the the gross margins are insane. Like if if you if you uh um th there's no incremental costs to deliver a, to a new customer. So let's yeah. say I'll pick on ShareSite because I've got it open on my screen and you see it and say it, right? <laughs> so so if, if someone signs up tomorrow, what's the cost to them to deliver that? Basically nothing. Mm. Here's a login. I mean, I'm, we're running on an AWS server, you know, one extra. It makes no difference whatsoever. Yeah. If I'm making a physical good, then there are raw materials and manufacturing costs and all of the other stuff in that. So you have these hyper high, you know, gross margins uh, which yeah which are always really 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 nice and it, it 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 just puts you in a very strong position that you really you really can unlock vast operating leverage i'm probably skipping ahead a bit too much here um, <laughs> but just to make the point 
This is why you mm. look at the gross profit, right? This is where you look at those sort of margins. Yep. And of course, the other thing to ask with all of these items that we're talking through here is that there will, we, we measure things in set periods, quarters, halves, mm. years. So there will be th things that, that move around in particular periods that might not be um, symbolic of, of the true economic nature. A good case here was with all the supply chain disruptions recently. You know, yes, that, that, yeah. you know, when the shipping containers were 10x what they normally cost, I mean, what did that do to gross margins? It really whacked it around. And if you extrapolate that forward, you could rightly sort of think, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's going to be terrible. Except if you thought, well, no, that will probably normalize as things settle down. So you've, you've, <laughs> you, in all cases, a general statement here, look at these items, but try and get a sense of uh, proportion over time. And another great thing you can do is look at peers. I mean, there's no point comparing mm -hmm. Woolies with Technology One, you know, but but there's a lot of sense to compare Woolies with uh, Costco or a Coles, mm -hmm. uh, yep. you know. Um, so so you you get a really good sense of about what is is quote unquote normal and what might be a realistic expectation. I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I will say by that while we're doing comparables, though, mate, one of the things I it, it it depends again for the, for the sake of it um you know d don't compare technology one and woolworths but then also compare them in the sense that there are very different business models and there is some potential value in either or both of those and so think about you know what do you trade off with one to get the other you might get 90 percent gross margins in catapult but its future is a whole lot less certain than woolworths future yeah. And that might be fine because Catapult might be super cheap and Woolies are super expensive. So that's also true. And it's and it's the combination of these things. We'll go through some of these um, ratios and comparisons later. But it is just worth thinking about, you know, what am I getting and what am I paying for that? And what does it do? And what are the upsides and downsides? Because, you know, generally speaking, it's also true in capitalism that if you're making excess margins, someone's going to come and take them off you. Mm -hmm. there, there, is, there, is, there is a little bit of value in saying, who is going to honestly take on Woolies and Coles? There's a thousand stores out there. They bank four cents in the dollar. Can you imagine trying to have enough capital and bravado or whatever to try and take on Woolies and Coles? I mean, now Costco might turn up, Walmart might turn up. It's not impossible, but you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, versus the the little tech company with a good idea with twenty five dollars in sales, it might have ninety five percent gross margins, but the chance it actually gets off the ground continues to be profitable. No one takes its business away. Mm. Its technology is actually adopted by enough people. Those things are real. Now, Catapult's not that out of the spectrum. I don't want to mischaracterize it. It's way further through than others. But you know what I mean? There's, yeah. It's always worth thinking about. There are some really great... You know, people talk about software recurring revenue. Mm. I've often asked, you know, uh, rhetorically, which is the biggest recurring revenue business in the country? And the answer is Woolworths, yeah. right? Because everyone, literally everyone goes there and they go there multiple times a week. But yeah. somehow we think software recurring revenue is better. And the answer is because of software margins. And again... It entirely depends on the price you're paying. So we'll get we'll get to some of that stuff. But you're right, comparables are really useful to look at, you know, how well is Woolies running versus Coles, which is the better gross margin, which has got the better net margin, which has got the better growth. Those things are really, really important. And it gives you a sense of stuff done well and stuff done badly. We mentioned um again it might be actually I'm not sure if, again, I'm not sure the sequence of these episodes. I, I mentioned good to great in one episode. I think it's probably on still to come. Uh, maybe this Sunday. The, the idea of, you know, two companies that went in very different directions all of a sudden in similar industries, similar characteristics. One goes to the moon, one doesn't. If you can find the right one of those, incomparables are a really good way to do that. It can be worth a lot. Hey, mate, yeah. let's, let's move and on. I can just add on to that too. Okay. Just, just quickly, this is where one of the really nice competitive advantages you might have 
which mm. will apply further down the income statement, but also here are scale advantages as well. So yeah, yeah. if I've got, let's say I'm just like 50 times your size and we're in the business of making, mm -hmm. I don't know, widgets for the sake of argument. And yep. um, because I'm buying so much raw materials, I'm going to get a better deal than you from the suppliers. Yeah which means I'm going to get a better gross margin, which means mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I've automatically got a bit of a head start on you there. So size matters, you know, mm -hmm. really can matter here when it, when it comes to these kinds of things. So it isn't always correct to assume that, uh, that oh, well, the industry tends to be on this and therefore this, this is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. No, it mm -hmm. might actually be very sustainable. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really, I think I spend a lot of my time trying to work out actually is, is just like, oh, that looks like a good number or maybe it's not a great number, but ca how can it be improved? Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and, and there are, there are certain characteristics that will allow companies just to have an almost unfair advantage over others. And that's a great yeah, that's thing right. if you can find them. Well, I mean, I speak of Woolies, mate, you look at, uh, why, why does every corner store operator come into Woolies at, late at night with a trolley and fill it up with boxes oh, yeah. and boxes of Coke? Because yeah. Woolies gets a better price. Woolies can sell it cheaper than the corner stores can buy it. And that, that is that is scale 101 right there. How much is a can of Coke? I mean, I used the example before, and I used it as sort of simple and this, frankly, a can of Coke zero in front of me. But, um, you know, it was, you know, how, how much is it? Well, it depends. You know, yeah. and, and, and by the way, too, without getting too much into it, but think about gross profits. The other thing is the, we talk about revenue, we didn't really talk about price. So think about the price of a can of Coke. Now, yeah. you buy it in a 30 pack, from well, 36 pack from Costco. I don't know what the cost is. It's probably it's a 40, 50 cents a can, probably something like that. I don't know what they are these mm -hmm. days. Uh, you buy it a 24 pack from Woolies, you might pay 80 cents a can. You buy it in a vending machine, you're paying two bucks. You buy it from a service station in a fridge, you're paying $3.50 for mm -hmm. the same can of Coke. Now, neither is better or worse. I mean, more is obviously better than, than cheaper, but you've got to refrigerate it. You're not going to sell as many of them. So there are, you know, and, and the customers are very different. So revenue we talked about as a, as a total number, and it's true. But revenue is always price times volume, right? How much do I sell yep. it for? How many of them do I sell? That that relationship, I, in a former life, I spent a lot of time uh, working as a, a pricing guy for some food companies. And that's, you know, that's always the trade-off you're trying to do. How many can I sell at this price? How many can I sell at that price? What's left over? How much profit can I make? Um, that's that's why if you can think as a business analyst, not just a I was just an investor, but you know, think about the business itself, not just the stock price or the share price movement or the charts. But you know, why are they selling at that price? Can they sell it for more? What's stopping them? What's giving them opportunity? Those things you mentioned, Apple. You know, Apple produces the price. Everyone says, "Sure, whatever you want, I'll, I'll pay it." Um, those things are really, really, really important, and it's so why you'll important. see. Talk about comparables. Compare Samsung's handset business versus Apple's handset business. Yeah. Apple has got a much, much, much larger gross margin for for all those reasons we just talked about. Yeah, I mean. What do you think is sold more, like a Bentley or a Toyota? I mean, there's yes, a lot more Toyotas Bentley. out there than Bentleys, uh -huh, uh -huh. but the margin on a Bentley is pretty pretty good. And I look, I haven't looked, so maybe maybe I'm going to have egg on my face <laughs> if anyone digs into it. But my yeah. my strong inclination would be that mm, the Bentleys mm, are far more profitable business. When I say profitable, I mean like they, in terms of the dollars generated, they get to keep a much more significant uh, part of it. Yeah. And, you know, there's sometimes less is more. I think more companies need to, there's too much empire building in, in the corporate world yeah. where we just want to be bigger yeah. because bigger is better. And it's like, well, not necessarily. I mean, I'm saying from revenue here, like, oh, I, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm the yeah, CEO yeah, yeah. of a 
$200 billion revenue <laughs> kind of company. <laughs> That's right. That's you right. could still be bleeding cash under that scenario. Mm-hmm. There is there is something to be said about really yeah. knowing exactly where you're operating here and, and, and picking a point where you get that lovely intersection of price and volume that is going to maximize things for you. And sometimes that might actually be pulling out of markets, pulling out of various segments. And that's another interesting thing I look for too, is there's companies that at the aggregate level might look pretty ordinary, but there might be a couple of business units in that that are just absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful business. They're just weighed down by this lead weight of either immature businesses or businesses that are just not performing. And this is what private equity looks for too, right? Like come in, oh, let's get rid of this, 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 this. And oh, well, it's, it's like the, the clunky block of marble that there's a statue of David somewhere within that if you just chip away all, all, all the rubbish. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Mate, um, let's talk about expenses. This is a really, 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 really big area that we're trying to, um, we're trying to kind of bring down to, you know, one one line, one, one metric, one conversation. But effectively, if you go through expenses, you've got everything there. Now, this is not product cost. This is every other cost of running your business. There's not a financial cost. And by financial cost, I mean interest and tax, which we'll get to in a minute. And also non-cash items like depreciation and amortization. So hold your breath for that. I know it's exciting. You're going to have to wait. Uh, these, <laughs> are, these are the business. The op- <laughs> exactly. These are the operational costs. Now, generally speaking, mate, I'm going to throw this in a couple of big categories and you can tell me what I've missed. Um, you've got the what they call selling and administrative expenses. So the costs of just running the business and 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 you know selling the do, doing the work that's a SG, salary cost and right selling general and administrative you've got marketing costs which generally you include as a selling cost but i'm thinking about here specifically how much money do i spend convincing people to buy my products hmm. you've got research and development r&d how much money do i spend creating the next version of this product or a brand new product and then you've got yeah, effectively, depending on the sort of business you are, technology, software costs, which are either part of R&D if you're a software business uh, or can be separate if they're a, a separate part of what you do. So imagine you know, Woolies isn't, a, isn't a, a software business, but it's, it's cost of running its uh, systems and website will be, will be spelled out somewhere separate there. Mate, have I missed any? And there's other expense, obviously, which captures everything else. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to, to touch too lightly on that, but I just want to we separate out the different parts of these businesses and why... I think expenses are important here. As you talked about scale a couple of times, Ram. Yeah. This is where it really matters. Yeah. Because you only need one CEO. Now, the CEO is probably going to want more money as the business gets bigger, speaking of empire building and Ram, and that mm-hmm. might be, surprise, surprise, part of the reason. Uh, but you only need one CEO. If you go and sell 10% more widgets, you don't need 10% more CEOs. Mm-hmm. You probably don't need 10% more salespeople. You might need another couple because you might want to go on a new market or you might want to add some sales reps to go and do a better job of selling. But generally speaking, you don't necessarily directly need that extra cost and in fact the marketing if it's any good should be actually generating even more volume than it's costing you otherwise you're wasting your money but again that that's a kind of a that's a leverage item as well because it magnifies itself when it comes to the sales and hopefully the gross profit you receive from that expenditure so these costs if a business is it's got to be growing and that's one thing you should be looking for by the way is growing businesses Mm. and they have a reasonably good cost management and as long as the cost of delivering that product isn't huge, you really do tend to, if you keep a close eye on the expenses line, it's not talked about very often because it's kind of considered the bit between gross profit and net profit, <laughs> but but it really matters because if you can keep that under control and if you can see a business that can scale, as we just talked about, uh, that's where these expenses can be really important. 
That's why I'm a little bit against services businesses. Um, Tell because, me why. well, the they don't scale very well. So let, let's say I I'm, keep it simple. Right. I run a lawn mowing business, mm-hmm. right? So I my costs, my employee costs, mm. go up for every new sale that I make. Whereas, again, comparing that to um, uh, other businesses where that that fixed cost component can mm. can sustain much higher levels of revenue. It doesn't change. I still need someone in the accounts department. I still need someone in legal. I still need this and that. Motley Fool, my business, so many businesses, same example. If, if you guys got, you know, 4 million subscribers tomorrow. Yes, 100%. Well, you're yeah. still sending out the same number of emails. The analysts are still doing mm-hmm. the same amount of work. I love that. I love that ability to unlock operating leverage and why it's so exciting. And I really like businesses. This is why- <laughs> this is why I don't mind businesses that are loss making, but mm. but have really good sales traction and growth, and are very close to what you call an inflection point. Because if my revenues like, well, let's use Catapult as an example, actually, just because we were talking about it before. So I mean, their top line's been growing at twenty percent for years and years and years. There's a whole bunch of history there with very ill-disciplined cost management and the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. But just in their presentation today, they're saying, well, actually, for every incremental dollar of sales, we get about a thirty percent margin on that, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. all of those fixed costs can sustain a much higher level. We don't we don't need to hire new people for every every new unit that we deliver. And so what you find is, is you get this real disconnect between the growth at the top line and the growth at the bottom line in, in the sense that sales might, let's, let's say that, let's say that my, my, gosh, I'm going to try and do some maths in, in my head on the fly here. So this, this is dangerous, <laughs> but, but, but let's say I've got a um, hundred dollars in sales and I've got a 50% margins, 50% gross mm-hmm. profit, but I've also got $50 in fixed costs. So I'm making $100 in sales, but I'm not making any profit. Now let's right. say that my profit grows 10% and my fixed costs Your don't have to change. Sale, sorry, sales grow 10%. Yep. So now yep. I've got $110 million. Well, I'm making a 50% mm-hmm. margin on that. It's 55. Mm-hmm. And then yes. I've got 50 in fixed costs. So all of a sudden I've made mm-hmm. 5 million. So zero to 5 million. Well, I can't do the percentages yeah. on that, but let's go up yeah, by 10% yeah. again. And you can mm. see that I go from zero to five. And this is where my mental maths is going to break down on the fly. But, <laughs> I'm, doing, but I'm doing it for that, you here as we go, mate. Well, while you scribble away, there's, there is a right, 10% so growth. Go. So I'm going, all, I'm, all, the, all you're seeing at the top line is 10%, 10%, yes. 10%, 10%, 10%. You pass yes. through that inflection point and, mm-hmm. and the, 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 the profit growth goes zero to five to 10. What is it? 10? 10. Oh gosh! Yes. Now that you say it, that's really obvious. Yes. So, so I've got a hundred percent. Obviously, you had, to, you had to do the work, but no, okay. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Okay. So that's 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 a hundred percent profit growth. Right. So wait a sec. You only grew by ten percent growth in sales. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then and now that that will level off over time, but that is something that the market will miss, and mm. it's why I can realistically, with a straight face, hold a bunch of companies that are on a PE of four thousand. Because people go, what the hell? That is ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> yeah, give it a couple more years of 10, 15% yes, growth and you watch correct. that thing plummet, particularly as those those mm-hmm. those numbers go around that zero point. It, it can be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're sort of alert to that, it, it it's a wonderful opportunity. Now, the downside of that is, and this is a lesson I think a lot of us have had in the, in the recent year or so, 
is is that companies talk a good talk. We're going to do this. The damn the trouble is that they the fixed costs keep growing and growing and growing. Mm. What's a good example? Dubber, I think, is a good example. They've got software that does sort of call recording services, et cetera, et cetera. Their revenue growth has been insane. It's just like you wouldn't believe it. It's phenomenal. Mm. It's a staircase, bottom left, top right, just a thing of beauty. But each year their, their fixed costs get bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> and bigger, and they never unlock that that much sort of touted operating leverage. So you've got you to be careful not just to assume that they'll be able to do it. And you've also got to be realistic that at a point – you will need to grow your fixed costs. You know, they, they, mm. there's a certain level of sales that your your fixed costs can handle, and that might be much higher than what it is today. But at a point, you just you do need to hire more people because it's a bigger and bigger and bigger operation. Amazon cannot run on a staff of thirty; like you just can't. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so you know, you will need to sort of assume some growth, and it's prudent, in fact, to have increased mm. costs, really, because you you might find that you're unable to do a proper service delivery with, without the proper costs, and people will get fed up, and the sales growth will disappear. But yes, I I, I just I love I love operating leverage when it's realized. Yep, I love it. I, 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 there's other kind of, somewhere in between there, mate, is it, it's kind of a, there's a sawtooth uh, opportunity too for, yeah. for expenses and for profits. And the best way to think about this is, it, let's say you're running a, I'll say a steel mill, they're not particularly attractive businesses. But here's the thing, when you, when you spend, I'm, I don't know what the numbers are, let's say you spend $50 million building a steel mill, right? On day one, you spend the $50 million, you're making nothing. That is just an absolute white elephant. Yeah. Now, as you as you grow your volume, you put your first roll of steel through. I'm going to lose myself very quickly. I'm not a steel <laughs> mill expert. Um, you, you you know you you, you build your you build your first widget. You output your first piece of piece of finished product, and all of a sudden you start to make a bit of money back to cover that cost. And then you keep going, keep going, keep. Going. At some point, you get to a break even, and then after that point, you actually start to make a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. And when the factory is at 100 capacity. You are making as much money as you're ever going to make out of that factory because you've got the machines working full time. The, the the money you're making, the profit you're making from those sales are just covering all your costs and spending a whole lot of money. And you make 100 widgets a year because that's as many widgets as you can make in the steel mill. Yeah. I'm reliably informed, Andrew, that widgets aren't made of steel, but for now we're going to assume they are. Yeah, uh, and, then, yeah. <laughs> and then you get the 101st order. And you kind of go, well, bugger, I, I, I can't yeah. actually fill that order. I've... I don't have as much capacity. And so eventually you say, well, I've got another order, 102 orders. And eventually the boss says, all right, guys, time to build a second steel mill. Let's, let's do it. The second you do that, your profit plummets, goes through the floor. Why? Because you had to outlay a whole lot of cash. Now we're ignoring the fact we'd capitalize some of this. Energy. I was going to say there's a wrinkle here, but yeah, you're right. Thank you're you. Right. Um, you outlay a whole lot of cash and you make one more widget. And so all of a sudden you go from this obscenely profitable business Mm. to a moderately profitable business because you make a fortune on the first factory. The second one is an absolute sinkhole. Yeah. But then again, you start to build that out. You build three, then four, then five, and you get back to 180. Now it's only making money again. And when they're both at capacity, you're making twice as much money as you were previously, maybe even a little bit more than that because you've only got one CEO and one CFO and one brand and one marketing campaign. And and so you can get this up and down when, you, when you're building out scale, adding more volume can actually cost you more money in the, or not cost you money you're gonna make making less money you can grow sales actually have reduced profits and you think well who, who on earth would do that mm. and the answer mm. hopefully if the investment is sound is it's a transitory experience while you get that new facility or the new product or the new office or the new territory or something up to scale zero did this um 
Uh, actually, a better one is um, Nearmap. Is it, I think oh. it's still listed. I'm not sure if it's still listed. Nearmap had this great Australian... They basically took, took photos out of planes and then stitched them all together using software. And the Australian business was really profitable. Yeah, and they listed. went, hey, what we should do, mm. we should go to America. We should go and try and take over that market. And you can imagine, the population is 15 times the size. The landmass is not all that much bigger, but there's many, many, many more urban areas who so needed more photography and more software and more developers. And so they had this business that looked on the surface really kind of just only barely profitable. They're making a squillion dollars in Australia, not literally, but they were spending it all trying to grow this US business. Now, if it's worthwhile spending, as a long-term investor, if they can make that work, mm. this business will be much, much, much more profitable in five or 10 years' time. But right now, you look at it and go, this is an awful business, not making any money. Now, yeah, this, is, this is terrible. Now, if you're a long-term yeah. investor and you believe in the company's vision and mission and they can, the execution, frankly, they, they can do it, then it's a great opportunity to, to Andrew's point of that, you know, that, that is the business to $100 million of sales and earning no profit. That was effectively the near map story. Now, if yeah. and when they grow the US business, then the profit comes in, then they start covering their costs and then it rains cash. And so that's an example of just that sawtooth pattern where to get to where you're going, you've got to take some losses in the short term to allow that scale to play out. I'll give you another example, which I've uh, got some shares in and um, mm. not much now for various reasons, but uh, Nanasonic's company, they make this nano nebulant mm. uh, yes. sterilization device for ultrasound mm. probes. So I used to sort of get some um, ethanol and wipe mm. it down. It did a pretty good job, but there's problems with that. You just chuck it in this machine, it sterilizes it for you, or it's, it's a really, really cool kind of product. Um, but they've spent a lot of money, a lot of money, and mm. trying to develop a new product for, I think, endoscopes and, uh, and other sort of medical thing. Now, that masked the profit. If they had, if they had mm. not bothered with that, and this is still early days, so I don't, I don't want to sort of count chickens here before they've, they've hatched, their profitability would have just been insane, like just just incredible. But they said, no, let's let's make less less profit. Um, mm. Well, let's make less profit now, and and <laughs> yes, we'll exactly. do that because we'll make more profit in the longer term. And I think there's good potential for that to happen. So it really mm. does. Whether it's a geographic expansion, whether it's a product expansion, the old adage is true: you must spend money to make money. And so the real mm. question here is: it's got to stop. We, we ranted about this when we were talking about the budget. There are costs and there are investments and they're different, yes, right? Yes. One is just an outright cost. I'm not getting anything back that is something <laughs> I've got to pay. Something I'm spending, the investment I'm outlaying money, yeah, true, but, but I expect something to come back as a result of that. And so while it's tempting to say, oh, you should just do this and then you'll make much more money, it's like, yeah, but you could be leaving a lot more money on the table and maybe there's other competitors out there that will be spending money on R&D or will be moving into new geographies and will be uh, able to, in the future, make much more money. Mm. You mentioned zero before. Now, what a reaction that's had recently on the market because, again, their top line has just been growing incredibly, but their profitability is massively dampened by, yeah. let's face it, a few bad acquisitions. It wasn't the best capital um, management there, but also a lot of money spent trying to break into America. Now, in Australia yeah. and New Zealand, to some extent the UK, they've had a lot better success. The UK is dominated by uh, QuickBooks. Uh, Inu mm. Intuit is the, is the company there. And that's a much harder, that is a much, much, much more <laughs> difficult thing. Now, are they, everyone's, everyone's sort of a, a hindsight expert here. Um, yeah. But but you kind of it's 
I'm, I'm pretty forgiving of companies that that try it when it's a reasonable proposition. Nothing in life is guaranteed and certainly nothing is guaranteed in business. I don't think that's the mistake even if it ends up failing. I think the mistake yeah, right. is is where you you bury your head in the sand, you just keep going and spending money no matter what, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So Masters is a good, we talked about Woolies before too, right? Masters was a horrible failure. I don't think it was that, I don't know. I'm, on, I'm out in the wilderness on this by myself. I don't think it was a no, dumb idea to try. 100%. I mean- It was a very, very good idea. In fact, I actually believe they pulled the pin on that too quickly because they lost investor support. Yeah. And probably should have kept going. They never got but, a chance to get to scale. We talk about scale, right? They right. they opened a few. They had some teething problems. The mistake was probably they opened too many, but not enough. You yeah. either you either should open one and get it really, really, really right, and then try and roll it out, or you open a lot and just suck it for up for five years and just really spend the time. But the investment community was so brutal. Honestly, I I, I think it's true to say that basically they, the management lost their nerve, looked at the investor response and went, they all hate it, the share price is down, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix it. Got, let's yeah. shut other things and get on with it. Yeah. Yep, yep. And look, it wasn't the greatest rollout and the rest of it, but it was it a yes, mistake yeah. to try? I don't think so. I mean, again, in hindsight, well, it didn't work out, but it wasn't obvious that it wouldn't work out. I mean, on paper, they've got all the advantages that West Farmers had, you know, and mm. and it didn't work out. But, but you know, and, and I agree with you, I think they probably did, they did give up too too soon, but you know, it, it, it there is also something to be said. Like, okay, try to pull back, and that's fine, right? Yeah. And then yeah. there is a there is a reality out there, parallel reality, where it never worked, and they just continue to throw yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions at it, <laughs> and this wonderful supermarket business underneath it all was just completely obscured by this malinvestment. So. It's hard, mate. It's really hard. It hey, the hard. other thing we should we hard. should um, so so I guess just to finish that this point here, you want to if you be fancy, you'd call it more of a segment analysis, but tease mm. apart the business. Where are the sales coming from? The expense because we're talking about expenses. The expenses that we have. Yes. What are just sort of maintenance expenses? Like this, just keep the lights mm. on, keep things ticking over. Versus what are the expenses that relate to to growing future earnings. The classic one you see, um, even in tech, or especially in tech, are all the sales and marketing expenses because no one knows about your product. It's huge upfront <laughs> yeah, right. expense. You know, moving into a new market, you've, you've got to spend a lot of money to sort of do that. Um, and it's not a dumb thing to do, you know, it, uh, in all cases. It, it needs to be done prudently. It needs to be done in a way that's sort of sustainable, et cetera, et cetera. But it's... it's in understanding the different components and segments of the business, you get a much clearer picture of what things could look like in the future, mm. which is going to be much more valuable than at a point in time consideration. I will say quickly too, Matt, before we move off, off this, in terms of expenses and, and the decisions management make, I I think it's not unreasonable to suggest, not no guarantees because no one knows the, the counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened had circumstances been different. As much as zero spent a lot of money trying to break into the US uh, and, and very tough against a dominant incumbent like Intuit with QuickBooks. I would actually suggest to you that as much as we talked about, you know, throwing good money after bad and wasting money and all that kind of stuff, I think Zero's biggest failing was actually not getting there quickly enough. Yeah. And, and you see, when we talk about businesses who are spending up big in a land grab, mm. the idea of like, we've got to get there first and get big. Uber got there first in rideshare, right? Had it been more, had it been slower to grow, would Didi or Ola or one of those others have got there first? Lyft 
Maybe, yeah. Mm. Think about MySpace mm. and Facebook. Different technology, yes. Different times, yes. Had MySpace been six, seven times, ten times bigger than it was, would Facebook have got enough traction? Maybe. Maybe it wouldn't be the first, mm. you know, Kodak got beaten by digital cameras. But mm. when you're Woolworths, someone else trying to open another thousand supermarkets and outcompete you is it's inconceivable because mm. the market isn't there. So there's also, you know, you don't want to go too late. You don't want to waste money. You don't want to do things in vain. But it's also exactly why, you know, Zero was the first mover in New Zealand. It was the first mover in Australia. Mm. If if Intuit had beaten them here, they'd try to come up with a better mousetrap. Zero might be objectively better than QuickBooks for all I know. I mean, they're all much or much as far as I'm concerned. But let's say let's say it's a little bit better. It wouldn't have mattered if QuickBooks had on their with their online cloud accounting software colonized the country first. Zero would have had no chance. Yeah. So being there first really does matter in some of these, particularly software, particularly technology. Uh, so spending up on those expenses, back to the point of the the conversation, uh, can actually be really useful. And it is why these companies make these big bets. And for all of those companies that try and fail. And we say, what were you wasting all that money trying to get to the US for? Well, you know, again, I, I don't think Zero's mistake was the amount of money it spent. It was spending it too late. Once mm. effectively the race had kind of been run and won, it was always a bit player and probably was never going to be able to seed or to get back that control or that, that market share it sought in, in the US because insurance just got there so much quicker. There's a really nice Mate, metric got- for these kinds of companies, yeah. uh, LTV mm. over CAC, <laughs> which is the lifetime value of a customer divided by the client acquisition cost. And you want that to be a pretty nice ratio. Now, think about it on a subscription basis like with zero. So you sign up a customer. I've had to pay marketing. I've had to onboard them. All of that money is out the door on, on day one. And they're only paying me their first year subscription. Maybe they're paying month to month subscription. So the money that comes in is awful. So I've spent all this money and a tiny bit of money comes back. But if you're something like zero or something has very low churn, very high retention, just one's the inverse of the other, and the average customer lifetime is eight years. And so I can look at the maths and say, well, wait a sec. If if the lifetime value of my average customer is $10,000 and it costs me $3,000 to get that, I should be spending as much money as I possibly can. Now, it's not going to show up. In fact, as I grow, my loss is going to accelerate. It's just the way it's hard to visualize, I understand, but the mm-hmm. loss will accelerate because all of these costs are being booked up front, up front, up front. But I'm actually locking in customers that will be with me for year after year. And once they're on board, then there's, there's hardly any cost to kind of service them. And so that's a really nice metric to look like in that um, situation. Hey, before we, I know, I know we're very good at saying end another thing, but end another thing. Yeah, tangent, we touched tangent. on something yes. before, which I, I wouldn't mind you to expand on. When, okay. when we, we talked about the steel mill example, now it's yeah. not exactly like that because even though I'm sorry, <laughs> go on, go on. But but we have to be complete. So when when you cost you ten million build, I don't know. It's obviously a lot more yes. than a 10, 10 million. Uh, I don't know what a steel mill costs. Let's call it a billion dollars. <laughs> costs a billion dollars <laughs> to build. Pick a number. You actually yeah. don't show a billion dollar cost on your profit and loss statement on your income statement. Um, what you do on your cash flow statement. Uh, absolutely, you do mm-hmm. because the cash is gone. Yeah, yep. Yep. but on on a on an income statement, you don't. Why Why not? That seems a bit dodgy. Why am I Why am I not accounting for all of that cost? 
I'm going to tell you about exactly that in a minute because we're going to get to depreciation, but I'm going to make uh, you hold that thought. Okay, okay. So I'm going to make you hold ahead. that thought. No, it's a good, it's a very good, it's a very good point. But I, I'd rather do it twice. I'm going to get you to hold that thought. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to mention on on LTV and CAC lifetime value divided by customer acquisition cost. I I think what's really fascinating is we found new ways and really clever ways of describing these things happening because of the software as a service industry because <laughs> of the way they they run their businesses. I just wanted to make the point, I, I tend to this from time, I'm not because I'm a Luddite, but it's also worth using that, that the framework didn't exist really in a, in a really clever way because we couldn't do the maths, frankly, before this. But think about, uh, again, because it's in front of me, think about Coca-Cola, the the, the, mm-hmm. the bottling, oh, sorry, the, the, the drinks company, right? Back mm-hmm. in, is it 1896 or 1886 or something? Um, some bloke decided to put some black stuff and some drugs we can no longer put in soft drinks and other things into a, into a soft drink, <laughs> uh, make them in, they were, they were made up in soda fountains on site. That's how they originally, you think about the McDonald's, you know, that's literally the first version of a, of a Coke before they bottled and canned it. Um, and he spent, or they spent years and years and millions and millions of dollars, certainly in, in modern currency, if we adjusted it for inflation and everything mm. else, mm. building this brand called Coca-Cola to the point where you say Coca-Cola is a, as, a, as a byword. Uh, we don't really even think about it, but think about the lifetime value of the marketing in the early 1900s yeah. that created this powerhouse brand that's been around for 130 odd years. Uh, now, it's not customer acquisition cost in the traditional sense. And it's not lifetime value because frankly, all of its early customers are now dead. <laughs> but the idea of the mm. you know of over investing in something now you've got to be right. There's no point investing if you're wrong. But you know if you if you spend Amazon did this for, for a long time, right? They just spent and spent to build out the acquisition, build out the uh, the um, logistics pipeline. They they built out their pricing model. They mm. they basically look. I don't want to make any money now. I'm going to overinvest in building this thing, whatever the thing is. Coke was a brand. Amazon was a a scale distribution network. Zero is a you know hopefully for them the best cloud accounting software out there. You spend less money up front. Say so if I if I do this really well, if, if zero becomes a byword for cloud accounting in Australia, which guess what it is. Yeah. How much is that going to be worth to me? And it's not even it's not even the LTV and the current customer acquisition cost. It's when you go to the accountant, he says, well, I'll take you on, but you got to use zero. Mm. The cost of acquiring me as a customer was literally exactly zero. Yeah. Not zero with an X, zero with a Z, because mm. I'm like, well, I want to use MYOB. Well, I only take zero clients. Okay, yeah. okay I'll use zero. And zero has gone, beauty. I invested some money 10 years ago that I don't even, I can't even directly put down to Scott Phillips, the customer, but that brand I've built, that business I've built, the network I've built, the distribution systems, whatever company, whatever business you think about, those, and, and we'll go back to Buffett for a second, they're, they're the moats, right? They're the things that make your business uh, defensible. Uh, or make it easier to acquire customers or keep your competitors at bay, whatever you do to widen that moat, uh, again, software really simple, lifetime value, customer acquisition cost, the maths is easy. But anything you can do to say, use me instead of them in whatever form, it it can pay for decades and decades and decades. And that's where if you find the right business with some of those characteristics, it can be really, really useful. Oh, 100%. Well said. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's talk about BS earnings. I'm not going to use the Mm. phrase. Charlie Munger would. I wouldn't. Charlie's older than me and richer than me. Uh, BS earnings. There's this thing called EBITDA. Now, I, I reckon... 99.483% 99.483% of our listeners have heard of the phrase or the term EBITDA. It stands for Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Amortization. Charlie would call it BS Earnings. Uh, others have called it Earnings Before Everything Else. Uh, in any of those circumstances, 
Uh, I think this is a controversial number that has its uses, has its detractors. Mate, yeah. tell us about EBITDA. It's it can be useful. It, it more aligns with cash flows because um, depreciation and amortization are non-cash charges. They're costs. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair to exclude them, frankly, in a lot of cases. <laughs> but but it, it I'm trying to sort of see through to what the uh, economic machine kind of looks like. And to get a little bit more complicated, it allows you to do so in a manner that's a bit more capital structure agnostic. Mm. And so by that, I mean, you might have, we both might have identical companies in terms of revenue and product and the rest of it. You're 100% equity funded, where I'm 10% equity funded and the rest is, is debt. Now, I've got an interest cost that you don't have, and that's gonna change them, pros and cons with all of that. But if I just want to sort of say, well, just look, forgetting how the thing is structured, you know, relative to what's sort of there, what's what's the kind of operating profit that I'm that I'm getting on the back of that? So it, it can be pretty useful. Tax, I think, is worthwhile to ignore because that's not up to the company really, unless they decide that they want to do something really dodgy. <laughs> um, but that's that's why you would use it. Um, I, uh, yeah. It, the where it's so let, let's let's look at a fair example um, amortization cost. So let's say I acquire your company, and mm. you've got a client list there. Now the accounting rules will sort of say, well, that you need to amortization and depreciation are exactly the same in principle. It's just that one refers to sort of hard assets, the other refers to more of intangible assets like brands and and those kinds of. Uh, well, actually, brands not a great example, but but like customer lists. Now. The accountants have to come up with some kind of way that we sort of amortize that over a period of time. But if I look at that and go, actually, those clients hang around for a very, very long time. (laughs) You know, I know the accountants have to be prudent and conservative and account for that, but these are absolutely non-cash costs. Mm. And, I, you know, and, and it's, it's okay, I think, to ig- ignore that kind of stuff. If I'm a business, catap- I'll go catapult again just because it's fresh, fresh in mind. Um, they build these little devices that the, the um, sports people wear on, on their backs and they, they, they pay for that up front, um, but then they depreciate the cost over time. And that's a real cost. I mean, that it, it's just you can spread it out or you can wear it up front, but it's a real cost. And they're things that, to my mind, are less reasonable to ignore. I don't know. What would you add? There's a lot yes. to say here. There's a lot to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by going back to EBITDA for a second before we go back to the costs that we're excluding. Um, I often have used in my writing, particularly for our members, the phrase operating profit to cover EBITDA. Now, there are different people who have different definitions of all these things, which is why they're all a bit messy. But effectively, EBITDA gives you a sense of before you, as you said already, mate, account for maybe the way the sausage is made, mm-hmm. uh, but some really important parts of it. Just if you own this business and you just said, look, I've, I've, I've bought the stuff, I've made the thing, I've sold the thing, I've paid the bills, what's, what's left? And a little bit like gross profit, it's an interesting stopover on the way to the bottom line. Because mm. it kind of gives you a sense of, you know, how well is this business doing in, uh, under its own steam? Again, not the other things don't matter or don't exist, but just, you know, separate to some of those non-cash charges or separate to tax, which does have to be paid, particularly when you make a profit or interest if you've got debt. Those things are real. But just an oper- you know, just the fundamental operating sort of, you know, business units themselves. 
How's that looking? And I think that's it is it is useful. It's not an end in itself. And when companies talk about it, they're trying to get you to ignore the fact that other things are changing usually, or they're not profitable. The bottom line: look, we're EBITDA positive, so you're still losing money. Yeah, yeah, but we're EBITDA positive. You know, it's that kind of stuff. So be careful of that. Also, be careful, particularly right now. Interest costs are going up, right? Because interest rates are going up. So of course, every company is going to want you to ignore the fact the cost of their debt is increasing. And how do you do that? You say, well, look, let's look at EBITDA instead. Yeah. Uh, and you get some, some different things. Below EBITDA, uh, below EBITDA, sorry, mate, is EBIT. Yeah. And EBIT basically allows for those depreciation amortization elements. No one talks about that anymore, by the way, because they've all convinced to look at EBITDA, which is always even better for them if they're trying to spin a story. But EBIT used to be the number we looked at, which was effectively, again, removing interest and taxes, which matter, but allowing for that depreciation and amortization. And here's why Charlie Munger calls EBITDA BS earnings is because if you're a business, and, and look, Berkshire owns some very capital-intensive businesses like railroads, right? Yeah. If you if you own a if you own rolling stock, if you own train carriages and whatever things they put coal in, what do they call that? No, carriages. Trains. Um, you own those <laughs> things, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah things that go choo choo. Choo choo. Uh, if you if you own those, they've got a finite life, right? And yeah. if you say let's ignore depreciation, what you're really saying is let's pretend those things aren't deteriorating over time, because mm-hmm. what depreciation does, and this is where the P and L is. A real challenge as a as a, um, uh, as a as a financial statement. It's why you always should look at them all in concert. Is you know there's no there's no cost on the P and L. Uh, sorry, there's no cost on the cash flow statement of that deterioration. So let's let's take an example. I'll go to cash flow and come back. Let's say I buy a car. Mm-hmm. All right, and my that car's P and L is year one loss or so cash outflow forty grand. Mm-hmm. Year two cash outflow zero. Year three, cash outflow zero. Year four, cash outflow zero. Year 10, buy a new car, cash outflow, $40,000. Mm. Now, in years two through nine, this car doesn't cost me a cent. How good is this? There's no cost to owning that car. It's fantastic. Mm. And then year 10, you go, why have we also got this $40,000 cost? Yeah. And it's what you talked about before, Andrew, getting back to your question about depreciation, is because the PL is an accounting statement, it's designed to show an asset being used up. And depreciation is that exact exact term it's it's the using up of existing assets for their useful life so that you get a sense of on average over time how much of this asset's value is being eroded and also frankly it gives you a sense of the replacement not cost in one single year because the cash outflow is different but it accounts for that eroding value over time so that you're not left with this really lumpy like cash cash is cash to your point andrew you spend a billion dollars on a steel mill Mm. it's real money it goes out the door it's gone but in year two, if you didn't have that depreciation, this business looks stupidly profitable. Look at that. I made steel and I had no, there was no cost of the building that it has to be made in. How good's that? Mm-hmm. It's free. Yeah. In other words, if you had to set up a business, you couldn't do it if you didn't allow for depreciation amortization using that, that, uh, that P&L. Year two, you'd be like, this steel business, wow, how profitable is this? It's crazy profitable. There's no cost of machinery. There's no cost of land. There's no cost of buildings. There's no cost of the vehicles that are going to break down. These things are all free. Until they're not. And so that's why the accountants, they call it um, the matching principle. It's supposed to match the, in some cases, revenue recognition. We talked about it at the very top. Oh, yeah. But also things like the eroding value of fixed assets. And so those those things matter. And that's why, long answer to your point, mate, but it's why Charlie Munger looks at it and calls it BS earnings because it pretends there is no cost to deteriorating real assets. And there, of course, there absolutely is. Those yeah. bills have to be paid. And if you ignore them from that calculation, you look more profitable than you are because it looks yeah. like there's no carrying cost of that deterioration. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing fishy going on here, right? 
you just need to be aware of of these things. And you will see these big mismatches 100%. when you look. By the way, we're talking a lot about the profit and loss. I mean, you've got to look at the three main ones, <laughs> yeah. the balance sheet, cash flow statement, all together. Um, and that's why you need to take that holistic view. But it, it will help explain a lot of these mm. things. Mm. By the way, here's another nice little thing. Um, I don't mind companies that have just gone through a very extensive CapEx cycle. CapEx just short for capital expenditure. So they've... They spent a whole bunch of money on plant and equipment. And, uh, you know, people people see that and think, oh, my gosh, look at all the cash that they're bleeding, cash flow negative, <laughs> rah, rah. Yeah. But it's like if that if that investment is then going to carry them for the next 10 years, yeah, you're right. The profit and loss will show the depreciation cost on, <laughs> on all of that. But, you know, cash – the old saying is that sales is vanity, profit is sanity, and cash is king. And, and, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, you know – it is it is what it is, but wow, there there are I know and, and look, it's cash that dividends are paid out of too, as well, right? So if they've now spent all of this money up front and their profit is going to be reported in future years accounting for that annualized appreciation cost, as it rightly should be, but I know that the cash conversion <laughs> there is actually going to be pretty good, right? Like I, I've, I, I can sort of rest on that investment for a long, 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 long Correct. time. Correct. So that's just something. Something else can, that can be pretty nice. On the converse, the inverse of that is the company that's really put off its capex, mm-hmm. and yeah. You know, it's sort of like oh, someone's like Qantas, maybe. Yeah, I wasn't going to say it. I wasn't going to say it, but it- <laughs> the fleet's getting very old and have to be replaced at some point. Going to have to be replaced, and again, it won't be obvious yeah. on the income statement, but on the cash flow statement, it will be. And and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's just something to be mindful of. You know, a nice way just to tie all of those three together, those statements, is that really the balance sheet is the central the one, I, the way I like to think mm. of it. It's a point in time because just the, at the end of the financial year, what do we own? What do we owe? What's the difference? That's basically what it, yeah. what it tells you. Yeah, 100%. But they're joined together. So what you have at the mm. cash flow statement takes the uh, links you to the asset side of the balance sheet, cash. You know, what, how has that changed throughout the year? It's a very big item there, or hopefully a big item mm. on, the, on, the, on the balance sheet. <laughs> and the income statement is going to show you how the – equity changes. So if you sort of, it's hard to again visualize, we've got the balance sheet in the middle. Uh, at the top there, you've got cash flow showing you how cash changes. Mm. At the bottom, you've got the income statement showing you how income changes and cash flow and income statement are, are not a point in time. They're over a period, so usually a year. Mm. Um, it's a really nice way of tying them all together. And again, why I say you really want to take a holistic view with all of these things. Let's... um. Let's, we, we, I thought I lost you for a second there. Then I zoom in. No, I, I'm just, I'm just thinking, just thinking. We, we've gone through the P and L beautifully, mate, um, and we'll go through some ratios next time. What I wanted to just finish up with is just thinking through. I want to go back to your point, or just pick up that point of the way you think about these statements side by side. Mm-hmm. Because I used to be, I think I've said this before. I was someone who used to say P&L's the P&L's the P&L. The accountants, there's rules. They have to do things the way they have to do them. The P&L's king. Price to earnings, well, share price, earnings, we'll talk about ratios. Earnings is earnings. That's the number. That's what matters. We'll use earnings. And then I was kind of convinced to your point, well, accountants can fiddle anything they, almost anything they want and not even necessarily improperly, though sometimes improperly. Uh, if a business wants to make things look different, you can do that reasonably easy with revenue recognition. You yep. can do that with provisions, for example. The, the provisions for bad and doubtful debts uh, in most years are one of the biggest impacts on bank profitability, for example. Yeah. Maybe everything else they do. 
the yeah. accounting decision of we've got too much money put aside or not enough money put aside. Whenever they change that number, that's a massive swing factor on their on their reported profits. Yeah. Um, and right through the P and L. So you say, okay, all right, all right. You know, as you as you said, you know, um, cash is king. Okay, let's use the cash flow statement. But then you go back to, and I've said this already about, you know, um, some of those big lumpy costs. In some years, cash flows flowing out the door looks terrible. Other years, nothing goes out the door. Everything comes in because mm. all of a sudden your, your, your customers all pay you in one lump. They pay you on the 1st of July rather than the 30th of June and things look very different or they do the reverse. Um, or you've got big, you know, capital equipment like your billion dollar steel mill, which is now the official price of a steel mill, by the way. <laughs> they don't ever ask me, the answer's gonna be a billion dollars. Um, you've got a billion dollar steel mill, or you've got $100,000 spent on a software upgrade once every five years or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And so these are really lumpy. Now they should be, because that's absolutely, the, the way you and I run our own bank accounts. Some years are good, some, some years I've got to buy that car, I'm gonna pay cash and my, my cash flow statement looks terrible. Other years I don't have to pay buy a new car, it looks great. I don't run a PL, I don't have an accrual system for my personal expenses. We run on cash flow and that, that makes a whole lot of sense. But I have to say, mate, I've kind of come back to, as you say, those three statements together really, really, really matter. Yeah. Uh, what are the assets of the business on the balance sheet? You know, what are the, and we won't go through all these statements, I'm going to go through them one by one. We'll just do the PL um, and, and kind of talk about how they, they matter. But that's why I wanted to bring it up just at the end here is, you know, the, 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 what assets do I have? What debt? Do I have? Think about you know the the I in, in the EBITDA or EBIT earnings before interest and taxes. Now, year on year, the interest is interesting. But if I'm looking forward as an investor, I'm going to say to myself, hang on, if rates have just gone up a lot, spoiler alert, they have, then the last year's interest bill is not particularly useful to me. What I care about is what sort of debt has this company got and, and how is the interest bill likely to change? Okay, well, that's the balance mm. sheet. You're going to find that information. Yeah. Um, you're not just going to say year on year, you know, sales are up 10%, therefore interest is up 10%. It doesn't work that way. We all know that. Yeah. So you want to look at that. Uh, I There's an ongoing argument about when you develop new IT systems. Yeah, you beat Some me companies to it. expense them all. Some companies expense them all. So, well, it's, it's, new, IT, it's new development. We're going to expense it in the current year because the money's been spent and it's gone. And that's seen as more conservative because they're not pretending that they can. Well, they say capitalize it and then de- depreciate. We talk about depreciation. Uh, they can amortize that cost over multiple years. Say, so, well, I build a new computer. It's going to last five years, so I'll do a fifth of it every year. Mm-hmm. Um, they're allowed to do that. They're also allowed to say, we spent the money. Let's just let's just write it off. One off cash flow. It's an expense. Gone. The money's out the door. You know, it's done. A lot of investors say that's the best way. Expense it straight up. That way, you're not carrying any pretend costs. You, you've recognized all that that cost. It's all done. I used to be in that camp. I've completely changed around, I have to say to you. Mm, mm. Because of that lumpiness I talked about with the new car or the steel mill, the fact that there's going to be an ongoing cost of this, because if you expense it in year one and you don't recognize any expense in year two, three, or four, the analyst who looks at the last three years' earnings in year four says, well, that's a really profitable business. That's, that's fantastic. Obviously, this is what you know, steady state looks like. Year five turns up, bang, million dollars of software development costs. Where the hell did that come from? Yeah. So I, I, I have absolutely changed my tune. Now, companies do use it to play silly buggers, and that's the, 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 hopefully the biggest lesson of all this is, as you like to say, it depends, but also mm-hmm. you know, check very carefully and read and understand the relationships. But I'm now someone who says, actually, I want, you to, I want to see it in the P&L. I, I, want a, I want a P&L as my primary statement, cross-checked with, validated by the cash flow statement, so I understand where the differences are, I understand why those differences are made. But to my mind, accrual accounting is one of the great wonders of 
modern business, we don't have banking without it. We don't have business mm-hmm. without it. We don't have double entry bookkeeping is the basis of modern business. Yeah. Um, that idea of, and I won't explain double entry bookkeeping, but that idea of using using the accounting rules to determine a, a, a profit and loss, not just a cash inflow outflow, to my mind is actually more important than I used to. Again, I used to love it. Used to The only thing I'd look at, then I went only cash flow, mostly cash flow for a while. I'm now back on P&L wins with verification from the cash flow. What about you? Yeah, I think that's really fair. I, I mean, I just, I, I just think they're all important. They all just tell you different things, and it's just worth having that sanity check. I'll give you a good example. Um, it's come to mind. There's a company I really love, and I've lamented that I don't know why I don't own this because I've always gone, oh, it's a bit expensive. <laughs> um, but it's a company called Objective Corp. They, they, they oh, do yeah. sort of enterprise software for government and that kind of stuff. I mean, just insanely net, net profit margins are uh, 20%. Um, what's interesting though, that 20% net margin is with, I think it's zero capitalized development cost, right? So if they wanted to, they could say, well, actually we spend all, I mean, the biggest part of their expense is all these highly paid developers who write all the code and maintain the software. That's that's their expense largely. They could say, well, we're building software that should last for like five years. So we're only going to book a fifth of the cost. Now imagine Mm. what the profit looks like. Now they've done they've not done that and I this is actually a bit of a pet peeve when it comes to software companies because too many capitalize too much of their expenses and I can tell you having built mm. software that it never ends right it never ever <laughs> bloody ends there's always something to upgrade mm. and fix and you know new features and the rest of it so they just say we're getting ultra conservative response every single cent that we pay to our developers we expense in mm. full each year now, if you yeah. didn't know, I mean, actually, looking at it, you'd think, well, it's still amazingly profitable. But but, but when you look <laughs> at it, like on a comparative basis with other people that do similar kinds of things, you realize just how spectacularly profitable this, this business is. And so it, there is, again, there's nothing, there's nothing illegal about any of this. There is a mm. argument to be made for both sides. It is a question of discretion. But you want to understand which way yes. they're going yes. about it. And, and I, for, for my money, a company like that that del- delivers those ma- net margins without capitalizing their development cost is something really fun, really special. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, I'm going to go down a whole other rabbit hole. But I'm going to pull myself up here because it's, 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 too, <laughs> well, it's too dangerous. I can see in. the wheels turning. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah. So look, I think uh, hopefully we've given our listeners a, a really good run through the profit loss statement and kind of then referenced it where we've needed to with, with cash flow and balance sheet. It is not, look, I, I have done, I've done accounting at uni. I've done accounting as a, uh, I've done a graduate diploma of accounting, believe it or not, for my sins. Um, Andrew, I've studied businesses for years. This podcast will not be enough for anybody to understand Scratch what's going on, but it should be enough. It should be enough to give you a really, really good head start. I would encourage anyone who's even slightly interested this weekend, go to your favorite company's website, make it something simple, make it Woolies or make it, I don't know, something really, really super simple just to start with, right? But I mean, yeah, get not, more not, not a bank, but not an insurance company. Right, not a, not a bank. Don't even go to a mm. software company for mine for now, mate, because all that DNA stuff that goes on. Try and get yeah. a, a very simple, understandable operating business. Um, don't, no conglomerates, nothing with too many business. Like try and get a really, really super understandable single Single business. Do you have any particular better ideas? I'll give you a bit of homework. Yeah. People go to? Uh, no one will go heard on. of this. It's a company called Supply Networks. Um, it's really oh, small. Nice. 
when I say really small, it's half a billion dollar company. <laughs> still <laughs> relative, right? This is why I sort of lament at people going, oh, small caps, they're tiny. It's like, not really. This is, this is a $500 million <laughs> company. It's got um, wonderful, yeah. I, I think it's, it's done really well over time. They, they provide aftermarket parts to commercial vehicles, buses, trucks. If you know, yeah, if you know Bapcor, it's a bit like that, except, except yeah. for, for yeah. trucks. And that's a nice clean, nice. that's a pretty clean set of financials. And that's, a, it's, it's a, yeah, it, it, it covers, I think looking through that, you'll get a good sense of everything that we touched on, particularly with some of the investments they've made recently in some supply center, uh, distribution centers and the like. But yeah, it's oh, one nice. to look at. There you go. Supply networks or Woolies, um, grab your favorite company, make it simple. And go and have a look. Just just open, download it from, from the investor's website. Just go to you know, the individual company's website. It'll type in Woolworths Investor Center or Supply Networks Investor Center or something. You'll find it. Uh, download the most recent annual report. Not, not the announcement, not the presentation. Grab the annual report and flick through. You might have to just, you know, control F or command F. Yeah, it'll be two-thirds uh, of the way through or something. It. Yeah. It literally, it's, in, it's, in the, it's in the cheap paper because, you know, the glossy stuff's up the front. Um, although these days people do it on screens anyway. Uh, mm. But go, go to that page and just, just have a look down the line as you go. Really get a sense of what's driving each of those lines. Look at look at the and ca- just, by the way, do some calculations. Look at the gross profit. Understand how it's changed year on year. Look at the expenses. See which expenses are going up and going down. What way are salaries going up or are they going down? Is is the interest cost going mm. up and going down? Mm. Look at the way the bottom line. We didn't ever talk about NPAT by the way, which is actually just what's left: net profit after tax. When everything's said and done, the money that's left over is the money that's available for shareholders. We probably should have mentioned that at least, <laughs> called it out mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. But look at what's changed on that line and, and see how those numbers have changed. And by the way, if you're also interested, I think this is a bit of a, uh, it was a bit of a beat up. It was a few weeks ago now because we're pre-recording this. But in middle of May, it's 22nd of May, I think it was, there's an article in The Guardian about Woolies and Coles gross margins increasing. Mm. Now, the company, the, the paper says it was profiteering. I don't necessarily think it was. I don't own those companies, so I don't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it, these, this is the language that people are starting to talk about. And the argument there is, well, these put their price up and Coles put their price up faster than their costs went up. So have a look at that and then go back to the P&L and look at what other costs went up. Did their supply costs go up? Did the distribution costs go up? Did the staffing costs go up? Uh, that'll give you a really nice sense of just how some of these things move over time. Then by all means, go to the zeros of the world and look at that and see how much money they're spending on marketing compared to their sales, for example. Or, or have a look at uh, near map again, it's not listed, there might be some old ones out there. But you, you can actually start to, just, you know, it's a bit nerdy and maybe people will stop at two or three companies and that's fine. Um, maybe you don't want to do any of them at all, which is also completely fine. But uh, I think you'll really get a sense of it. And then also, last, last bit of homework, go to those companies, go back then to the presentations they release mm. and look at what numbers they highlight. Is it EBITDA? Is it EBIT? Is it NPAT? Is it something else? Is it gross margin? What else did they talk about? Um, there was a famous company that went broke about a dozen years ago, Ram, not actually that famous, but it went broke about a dozen years ago. And their sales were down. Their profit was, they, they made a loss. This was an awful, awful, awful set of statements. And their headline was, gross margin percentage increases. <laughs> it was literally the only thing they could find in their entire P&L. No one ever, ever, ever talks about your gross margin. As if it's ever going to work. Unless. As if it's ever going to work right? anyway. It's like, oh, well, right. I guess I'll stop reading at this point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Anyway, but yeah, you get you do get a sense of the things that move around and, and why they move. Um, and I reckon can I, can I, can I do, before you do, before you do, sorry, yeah. I think we've talked, and this is a whole other um, area which we, we won't go into, but we have often talked about valuation and it's important and the rest We're of it. We're going to do that next time. Um, and so I'm really keen to dig into that. But 
This is, I, I think we are both on the same page when we say that you can sort of get a little bit um, overly confident in the false precision that these approaches can do. Yes. But, but I think they're very valuable because what, if you were to try and attempt mm. a, a discounted cash flow valuation, mm-hmm. you break open a spreadsheet, what you'll do, mm-hmm. well, I think what I do and I think what most people do is you sort of start with the top line, again, sales, nice and easy, how's that going to grow? And then on each of those line items, or the big ones at least, you'll look at, well, how does that change, right? Now, they're all guesses. They're all guesses. But that's going to really give you a good sense. So this is why spreadsheets are so wonderful, I think, you know, because you know, it's much easier than doing a pen and paper and a, and a calculator. But they, you will be able to sort of just move certain dials up or down and you, you will see how radically some of these, like the bottom line actually changes as a result of mm. that. Um, but one of the things that I really like about it is the rules of thumb that you can apply on it. Because sometimes you do these things and you come out going, wow, in five years' time, it's going to be on a 48% net margin and rah, rah, rah. <laughs> it's, like, it's probably something you've made a bad assumption somewhere, if that's the case. <laughs> that's it's very, you can count on yeah. one hand the number of companies yeah. that sort of enjoy yeah. 50% net margins, uh, so especially in the public correct, domain. Correct. So it's 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 – it's a, but it is a nice exercise because of all the concepts that we're talking about. It will force you to go through and think about these things. When we're talking to um, CEOs with Strawman and the meetings that we do, we're often sort of saying, you know, well, how's your cost base looking? Can do you mm. expect? How do you expect that to change over the, the years? How have margins impacted on the gross basis, and what is that? What how's that likely to change? You will. It's such an analyst asks these questions a lot because they are mm. so important mm. to how everything sort of washes out in the end. Again, don't 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 get lost in hyper specificity and, and start believing forecasts for facts. But the 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 exercise will be valuable just from an educational standpoint. Yeah, I like that, mate. That's a really lovely way to finish off. Hey, um, should we do ratios and valuation next time? Yeah, I'm keen. Yeah, lots lots to talk about. There you that. go. If you love this podcast. Thank you for sticking with us. We know it's very accounting heavy. We've tried to make it interesting. We've tried to make it useful. We've tried to make it practical because those are the things that matter for investors. But they also are, you know, if you've had to wade through this, I'm going to actually, speaking of homework, have another listen to it if you need to. If you're someone who's just, you don't have a finance background, you don't have a business background, you're like, I kind of get what they mean. I think it kind of makes sense, but I'm not sure. Do yourself a favor, not because I want you to hear me bang on twice, but just just try, really try and knuckle down on this one because if you get this stuff right, if you can really give yourself a solid foundation, it's a really, really great way to start thinking about businesses themselves. Not even stocks, just businesses themselves. If you yep. can understand some of this stuff, it'll put you in very, very good status. In investment. I'll even go further than that. I mean, the wonderful thing these days is that there's so much great stuff for free online, even just YouTube, right? Mm. You know, there are all kinds of people who go into wonderful detail. Ah, Khan Academy has some good stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all good. And I would say, look, I'm I'm just a bit slow, so I'm happy to say this, but it took me years to – I'm not even at the point now where I'm super confident with it, right? Like, I think the more yep. you know – what's it called? The Dunning-Kruger effect? The less you know, the more confident yes. you are. <laughs> and, and I think the more you know, the more you start to realize the limitations yeah. of, of your capacity. But I, mm. I – I can speak personally. It took me a long time to really have the penny drop on. I mean, I think I mm-hmm. could quickly regurgitate the right words, but yeah. but to to really know them and understand well, understand them better is a better way of saying it. it took a long time, and I, I think it's an ongoing process. It was interesting when you were just saying before. It's like, oh, I used to think this, and now I think that in terms of the income mm-hmm. statement. 
I think that's actually I think that's I think that's great that 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 you've got that flexibility of thinking and it, and it could change again, right? Like it will, you will go totally, yeah, on yeah, a journey, yeah. right? And some things will take a while to stick. Others will get very quickly. And then you'll just come back to things and just look at them through wiser, more experienced eyes down the track. It's always going to be in, in, intimidating. But here's the other thing I would say. It's a very, very deep rabbit hole. But with investing, you don't have to be the smartest investor to do well. You just kind of have to be in the top fifty-one percent, right? You know what I mean? Like if you if you yep. if you know a little bit, you probably know a lot more than a lot of the other quote-unquote <laughs> yeah, retail right. investors that are out there, right? You're, you're, it's, it's a yep. it's a if you're looking for an edge, and frankly, if you're stock picking, you you need to sort of try and have an edge. That's a great way. That is a great way to have an edge for people who are only looking at you know oh it's. You know, everyone's going to eat chocolate, so I'm going to buy a chocolate company. All these first-level thinking kind of things, or mm. you know, oh, the the share price is up, so therefore it must be good. A little bit, of, a little yeah. bit of knowledge can be dangerous, but but I also think um, it it is something that's going to put you. You don't you don't have to be a grand master before <laughs> before you're reaping the benefits of of learning yes. some of these concepts. Hey, not only that, by the way, you talk about being better than other retail investors. You can actually be reasonably better yes. than a lot of fund yes. managers because – and here's the thing, right? And I, I, to your point, I, I went to uni. I've done a graduate diploma. I've done a Bachelor of Commerce, and I learned a lot about accounting. I did one course uh, called account, uh, Finance for Non-Financial Managers, I think it was called. And speaking of opening your eyes, that was it was just presented well. And I hope we've done a half-decent job today of explaining some of this stuff because – literally that course went from here's the accounting theory to actually here's how this applies to business mm-hmm. i was like mm-hmm. oh 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 now i get it and it was a really it just, again scars from the eyes experience mm-hmm. where i literally went from you know understanding everything yeah there's the old say about knowing the price of everything the value of nothing yeah you know and and knowing, knowing just the basic accounting is the price of everything that's really valuable because you can't know the value without knowing the price mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. to then work out the value of something is to apply that price to what you have and say so what is that telling me mm. and again uh, you know I, let's not go on for going on for going on but your point about learning and learning and learning over time it truly is getting these things roughly and then doing it off enough doing it over and over again until patterns start to emerge kind of da vinci code stuff right so all of a sudden Oh, now I get it. I oh, now I recognize that thing. I remember that thing happened over there. I remember Andrew and Scott said that thing about that. Mm. These things start; they, they genuinely build on themselves. And I, I really want people to compound. I had a had a member. You had a member who who messaged on one of our message boards for our new services, who said, uh, "I love the podcast, even if I don't understand everything you're saying." Uh, thank you, Andrew, if you're listening. And um, I, I, which I was, I was grateful of the podcast. I feel a bit guilty that we didn't make ourselves understandable enough, uh, but. Over time, these things, they, I promise you, even if it's weird and doesn't make any sense right now, these sort of, hopefully this podcast and others will build and build and build and build and build. And you get to that point where you think, okay, now it starts to make sense. And it's yeah. like every skill you learn, right? You play the guitar, you pluck the string, you try and play an E, you hold your finger down the fretboard properly. Oh, that's a bit ugly. Oh, that's a, okay, that's a bit better. Now the B, oh no, that sounds terrible. Now E to B quickly. Oh, I can't do that. All of a sudden you're playing you know, not necessarily spectacularly, but well enough. Classical uh, gas. It, it is literally mm-hmm. like it, it, classical gas. Mm-hmm. It's like learning any any new uh, any new skill. You don't need Tommy Manual, but mm-hmm. uh, as a, as Ram says, you you can be you know, a passably good guitarist to pay to play in a pub band on a on a Wednesday night at the local RSL, and and that's that's going to get you a really good investment return, and you're going to have fun. 
yeah. you're going to enjoy it and it's going to make sense. And that's that's worth striving for. And, uh, and another thing. Here we go. We're and into another the second thing. hour here, but <laughs> well into the second hour. But just bring it back to bring it back to commonsensical kind of things. I mean, think about it. What do I want for mm. a business? Well, I want sales yeah. to grow and I want and I yeah. want that yeah. to be profitable growth. And I want to be able mm-hmm. to grow without having to throw a huge amount of money at the damn thing. And when all is said and done, I want lots of money left over after I've accounted for depreciation, after I've accounted for tax, after I've accounted for mm-hmm. interest. I mean, that's it. Full stop. That's what I want. All of the rest is yeah. just filling in the detail to get confidence around that. And that's why it's the Buffett's, you know, investing is simple but not easy. I mean, it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Yes, more sales, please. And, and more money left over yeah, after I've made right. them. That's what I want. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And more money and more money after that next year than the year before or yeah, yeah, exactly. a reasonable price and all of a sudden you're there. Yeah. This is just yeah. feeling it's just fleshing it out to make sure that that is, that is on track. And yeah, you, you'll, you'll practice makes perfect and, and you'll, you'll get there. And another thing. <laughs> no, <Fool> don't. <laughs> Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.